Oral questions by members. Leader of the Official Opposition. Thank you, uh, Mr. Speaker. Mr. Speaker, the government's current approach to mental health and addictions uh, has utterly failed. Over 11,000 lives lost, chaos and disorder on the streets of virtually every community across this province, a broken system that is costly, inadequate, and impossible to navigate for increasingly desperate families. The minister even acknowledges that the NDP don't even track the funded beds that are available, nor do they know what outcomes they're getting from any of the investments they're currently making. Now, we know better is possible, but frankly, the throne speech yesterday was a promise of more of the same failed approach. So will the government admit that the status quo of the last six years has utterly failed and make a dramatic shift to a system of care that actually focuses on helping people get better? Minister of Mental Health and Addictions. Thank you very much, uh, Honourable Speaker, and I do want to thank the member for his question on an issue that I know all members of this House are concerned with. I know that many of us here uh, have experiences in our communities, in our circles, have been impacted by the mental health and substance use crisis in our province, a, a crisis, frankly, that is experienced in all jurisdictions of our country, of our continent. Since 2017, our government has worked to build an integrated system of care for mental health and substance use. And that uh, approach is articulated in our, in our pathway to hope that the vision that does in fact unite our investments in uh, mental health services for children and youth, Indigenous-led solutions, uh, it addresses substance uh, use, and builds out a system of care and treatment across the continuum, from counselling, community counselling, through to detox, through to treatment and aftercare. Uh, there is no question, Honourable Speaker, that the progress, significant progress that we made in 2019 after two intensive years of this work, a significant progress in which we saw a significant reduction in mortality associated with the toxic drug crisis, that progress was bedeviled by the COVID-19 pandemic, and we are working hard to catch up, uh, to, re to, regain, uh, to regain that ground. We are very committed to supporting British Columbians uh, through this crisis. We're going to continue to do the work, continue to make the investments, $500 million in 2021 to stand up services. That is the work we're going to continue to do with our partners. Thank you. Leader of the Official Opposition, Supplemental. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Well, Mr. Speaker, the problem is that everywhere you look, you can see very clearly that things are getting markedly worse. And yet, I just heard the Minister stand up and defend more of the status quo. Doing more of the same thing and expecting to see different results is illogical. And I recognize it's become a bit of a hallmark of this government. There has to be a dramatic shift away from the current approach. Just focusing on supplying publicly supplied Numbers. addictive drugs to people struggling with addiction, while at the same time decriminalizing crystal meth, heroin, fentanyl, cocaine, is not going to end well. We need to focus on actually helping people 
recover from their addictions, to get better, so they can become have an obligation, where necessary, through involuntary care, if necessary, to take those that are most vulnerable and have been left on the streets to their own devices to be put into proper care so that they can be looked after as a caring and compassionate society ought to do. Now, your own Premier did briefly pay lip service to this idea, but quickly backed off, and now nobody knows where government's position is on this issue. So my question to the Minister, will somebody in government clarify your position? Do you support involuntary treatment for vulnerable youth and adults that are at risk to themselves or others? Minister. Thank you. Thank you, Honourable Speaker. Uh, there, there was a lot packed into that, uh, in, in, into that question, uh, Member, and I, just, I, I, I do want to start by assuring British Columbians that when it comes to investments that our government has made, the work that we do with our health authorities, with our community partners, with frontline providers, that that work is very much focused on the continuum of care and responses that is required in the crisis that we are, that we are dealing with. We have over 3,200 uh, publicly funded treatment beds in this province. We invested $500 million, $500 million in 2021 to build out that integrated system. We have, a, we have uh, worked to increase our uh, detox beds, care and treatment beds, aftercare supports, all the way through our system. We are building out those supports. And importantly, we are working on mechanisms to keep people alive so that we can get them to treatment because we think keeping British Columbians alive and giving them a chance to recover is important. We know that there, uh, that, uh, that there are uh, tools under, under the Mental Health Act that uh, providers, that, that physicians have access to and that they use when it comes to the question of, of involuntary care, and we are working hard to continue to support our frontline providers um, with respect to, to their, their use of those tools. Leader of the Official Opposition, <coughs> second supplemental. Well, thank you, Mr. Speaker. Well, Mr. Speaker, uh, the minister needs to know that what really matters are what outcomes you're getting. Mm -hmm. It's not a, a thick Pathways to Hope document that has no measurable, no measurables, no definable you know, metrics that you're going to actually try and meet. It's got lots of platitudes, but it's not getting us to where we need to go, which is improved outcomes. You cannot just say we're going to do more of the same when every year Members. we see the rate of overdose deaths increasing every year that this government has been in power. Every day. There is nobody I talk to, nobody, that looks around and thinks that the system we currently have operating is working. Nobody. And every day we hear from desperate parents, Mr. Speaker, whose children are not well and need help, but who are not getting the help that they need. Now, the number of children and youth under age 19 who have died from an overdose has more than doubled in the last two years to 65 deaths. And this government had an opportunity over two years ago to make a difference with legislation that would have allowed for involuntary treatment of those exact same youths, but government abandoned the legislation. And so my question to the minister is direct. Does the government support 
involuntary care for vulnerable youth? Yes or no? Minister. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Honourable Speaker. I think there's no question, particularly when it comes to children and youth, and certainly what I hear from uh, what I heard th certainly through our education system, what I hear from people in my community, what I hear from parents is the need to intervene and address uh, uh, mental health issues uh, with children and youth before they get to be the kinds of problems that lead to addictions to uh, addictive substances. That is why our, our government has, has, has targets, is, is scaling up services for children and youth. Members. Five, $55 million last week to announce an expansion of our integrated child and youth teams. Those services that are pulling together supports for kids throughout many, throughout multiple agencies so that we can wrap care around kids. Those are providing uh, important outcomes and important opportunities to connect kids to care and services. We are scaling up the Foundry, access to Foundry in many communities across, across the province. There is no question that those are critical investments to be made in, in our children and youth, and we will continue to work with physicians, work with our health authorities with respect to the tools that they currently have under the Mental Health Act when it comes to circumstances under which an individual may need to be involuntarily um, admitted. Member for City South. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. My constituent, Bob, has been through hell since his daughter was admitted to Peace Arch Hospital with a substance use disorder. He was told that his daughter might be released less than 24 hours after being admitted. Bob felt helpless, desperate, and afraid that if his daughter was released, she would harm herself or drink herself to death. What is this government's position on involuntary treatment that can save lives? And will this government commit today to reintroducing legislation? Minister of Mental Health. Thank you, Honourable Speaker, and I want to thank the member uh, for her question and express my express my sympathy and and uh, and, and, sh and shared concern for the experiences that, uh, that that her constituent has gone through, and that that we that we of course hear from uh, from from parents. And again, I know that many uh, many of us hear uh, uh, stories uh, with respect to the challenges that uh, that our our uh, people in our community experience uh, with their. Uh, with, with children and youth. I do want to say, though, again, though, that children and youth are very much at the forefront of our 10-year vision in the Pathway to Hope. It is a roadmap that creates an integrated system of care for everyone. Since 2017, we've invested nearly $240 million in new and expanded uh, mental health and substance use care for young adults, including youth, youth treatment beds. More than 28,000 children and youth receive community-based uh, mental health services each year, and I've, you know, I've seen uh, the, the the foundry services in action, uh, where kids can access very, very much barrier-free, really access to, to primary care as well as mental health, substance use, uh, substance use treatment. So, you know, th that is work that we are doing, uh, along with uh, partners in school districts, in health authorities, to really take the care to where kids are and wrap the services around them. We're going to continue to do that important work with our partners. Sorry, South Supplemental. Minister, thank you for your sympathy. But people need more than your thoughts and prayers. And a 10-year plan is cold comfort to people who are desperate for help for their kids now. 
remind you that in the last two years, 65 young people under the age of 19 have died from substance use overdoses. That's more than double in the previous years. So parents like Bob are desperate to save their children as they watch them go in and out of the hospital but not receive treatment. Even if his daughter wanted treatment, Bob was told that the wait would be three to six months or cost tens of thousands of dollars, leaving a massive gap between basic stabilization and getting treatment. So will the government support involuntary care if necessary and our plan for an accessible, no-cost, recovery-oriented system of care so that people who need treatment can get the help they need when they need it? Minister. Yeah, thank, thanks, uh, thanks very much, uh, Honourable Speaker. And, and again, uh, these, of course, are, are areas of our healthcare system that we are working very hard with all of our partners to, to scale up the, the services. And I think, you know, the member makes a really important point about that gap between, um, between uh, you know, a, a, an individual who is in crisis, and we've done a, a lot at the crisis end to, uh, to, uh, to ramp up, you know, peer-assisted care teams and such on, the, on, the, on that identification of the, of the initial crisis end of things. And we're doing, uh, you know, we, we need to do more work on making sure that we are, uh, that we have a, a seamless uh, process for, uh, for individuals, for children and youth and adults when it comes to accessing, uh, accessing treatment. So that's work that our Premier has committed to. Our Premier, um, you know, first talked about that seamless approach in, in, uh, in the Safer Communities uh, Action Plan last November. That's work that we are, are undertaking with health authorities um, to, to build, and there'll be more, more to say on that, obviously, in, in the coming weeks. And in the interim, what we are doing is continuing the work to expand, uh, expand the services, the investments for, uh, for access to, uh, to, to counselling, to care and treatment, Specifically for youth, we uh, and including uh, with respect to uh, to interventions through our specific response to the toxic drugs um, crisis through um, uh, through uh, through through uh, making sure that that safe supply is uh, is available for uh, across the continuum of, of care. 53 million in early psychosis intervention supports, including 100 new full-time care providers in the system. There's just no question that the that that the that the the investments that are being made are significant, and at the same time, we all know we are experiencing a rising tide of need, a rising tide of need as a result of the pandemic, as a result of the crises that our communities have been through over the last three years. So, uh, Mr. Speaker, we are going to continue that work. We agree that there are that there is more work that needs to be done. We agree and are very grateful, frankly, for the cooperation and for the, the sentiment you. across all parties of this House through the, through the Health Standing Committee last year on the solutions that we've been working on. That's important collaborative work that we need to do together in our communities to face this crisis. Leader of the Third Party. Thank you, Honourable Speaker. Healthcare in this province is in dire straits, and here on Vancouver Island, the problems are severe. This was apparent at CBC's Town Hall last night, where people shared their heartbreaking stories while a senior health official sat at the back of the room with her arms crossed, shaking her head. 
there is a serious organizational culture issue at Island Health. A leaked Island Health employee satisfaction survey was damning. Of the 11,000 staff who responded, less than half felt satisfied with their management. And worst of all, overwhelming perception was that Island <coughs> Health does not care about their well-being. And the 2022 Doctors of BC report found that Island Health physicians have the lowest satisfaction with their health authority in the province. And it's been declining year over year. Doctors speaking out about their serious concerns about patient safety are threatened, punished, and silenced. Island Health isn't just punishing doctors, though, Honourable Speaker. They're punishing entire communities. The patients who are going without care are the ones who the Minister must be accountable to. And my question through you is to the Minister of Health, does he have confidence in Island Health? Minister of Health. Uh, thank you, Thank you, Honourable Speaker. Yes, I have confidence in Island Health, and I'll tell you why. <laughs> Members? Members? Minister will continue. Uh, Honourable Speaker, uh, Island Health, Honourable Speaker, has delivered over the last three years. And that means Island Health is doctors and nurses and nurse practitioners and health sciences professionals and healthcare workers has delivered, Honourable Speaker, an extraordinary response to a pandemic that has faced the entire world, and they've done it together, Honourable Speaker. Honourable Speaker, over the last uh, 12 months, Island Health has been part of that. We have a new, uh, a new uh, to practice contracts for new doctors to bring them in to longitudinal primary care. We've set records in the number of surgeries and diagnostic procedures we've done, which matters for people who need surgery and matters for people who need diagnostic procedures, Honourable Speaker. And we're working hard to deliver care everywhere. I reject the idea that when people raise concerns, they are threatened. They are not, Honourable Speaker. We have an outstanding team at Island Health, Honourable Speaker. We have an outstanding team that is doing its very best to deliver health care in very challenging circumstances, a worldwide pandemic and have set records in the process. We always have to do better, Honourable Speaker. We always have to work harder with staff people. We always have to work harder with our teams to make sure that they're involved in decisions. But I have confidence in Island Health to do so. Leader of the Third Party, Supplemental. Thank you, Honourable Speaker. When, a health, an, when the Island Health Employee Satisfaction Survey comes out and fewer than half say that they're satisfied with their management and they say that they, their health authorities not care about their well-being, I would hope that the minister would be concerned about that. I would hope that the minister would indicate that as the representative for people in this province, that he would demonstrate some concern about the conditions that are being expressed in a survey like that. Let's look at one situation in Island Health, Honourable Speaker. There used to be four doctors for the Port Hardy Hospital. Come this summer, there will be one. Dr. Alex Nateros has come forward with solutions for his patients. Hiring physician assistants would be a way to meet the needs of people on the North Island who have been deeply underserved by the health system. 
They have seen hospital closures become a regular part of their lives, but his solutions are being rejected. He, Dr. Nateros, has spoken out about the mismanagement of healthcare by Island Health. In his own words, he is experiencing, quote, continued harassment by the health authority leadership. That is the words of a doctor who is holding down the emergency room in Port Hardy, who is serving the needs of people in those communities. His experiences are echoed by doctors across the region and across the province. And it's not doctors who are being punished, it is communities, it is people who are suffering. The minister says everything is fine, but that is not what people are experiencing. My question through you, Honourable Speakers, to the Minister of Health, will he agree to meet with the healthcare professionals working for Island Health within the next two weeks? Minister of Health. Well, thank you, Honourable Speaker, and with respect to uh um, the issues in the North Island. Uh, in the last week, we've, we've taken specific action to support those communities. That means incentives to bring nurses and doctors to the region. Additional, Honourable Speaker, diagnostic care in the region, Honourable Speaker, supports to communities in the region, including for mental health and addiction issues, Honourable Speaker. And those came, Honourable Speaker, because we did listen to communities including the member for North Island, including representatives of North Island Health, who met with representatives of all communities and, and Honourable Speaker, received their suggestions and, in fact, enacted those suggestions, Honourable Speaker. So I think, Honourable Speaker, uh, what, I, what I can say is what you see is a very significant challenge in those communities and specific action to address those challenges, which I think is what you need to do. It's why, Honourable Speaker, we put in place new-to-practice contracts in B.C. 109 contracts signed. They were against them, Honourable Speaker. We put in place, Honourable Speaker, a fundamental reform to primary care, Honourable Speaker. We put it all, Honourable Speaker, not the status quo, in one week, Honourable Speaker. In one week, Honourable Speaker, one-third of primary care doctors have moved to the new model, Honourable Speaker. After 20 years of failure by then, Speaker, it is the absolute responsibility of Island Health to work with communities, as it is my responsibility, and will continue to do that. The actions that we took, Honourable Speaker, in Port Hardy and in Port McNeil and other communities were informed by those communities, and we are going to continue to act with that in mind. Member for Prince George Wilmot. Thank you very much, Honourable Speaker. As part of this government's pursuit and implementation of decriminalization, there was a very specific letter, in fact, a letter of requirements to support BC's exemption. In the letter, there is a list of requirements, and I would like to just uh, ask the Minister about one of them. The government has been asked to, and I quote, ensure that individuals who desire treatment or other supports can access them when needed, end quote. Is the Minister of Mental Health and Addiction satisfied that this very specific requirement has been met and that people right across British Columbia can access treatment when they need it? Minister of Mental Health and Addictions. Thank you, Honourable Speaker, and thank you to the, to the member for, for her question. And 
More broadly, I want to thank uh, this House for their support of this decriminalization uh, um, uh, program, which was a subject of discussion through the Health Standing Committee and which, which, which providers, which, uh, you know, uh, the frontline providers, police, municipalities, uh, people who use drugs, the whole, the whole continuum of, uh, of, of people and stakeholders who are, who are in this space um, have supported as an important way, as an important mechanism to reduce fear and stigma so that we can better connect people who need, at, who need help to that care and support. And of course, we are making the investments necessary in order to scale up that's the, the system of care and treatment. We've added 360 new treatment and recovery beds for, for adults and youth. We have over 3,200 beds across and spaces across, across the province. $55 million for integrated child and youth teams. Complex care housing. We, we are coming at this from all of the different angles across the entire uh, across the entire uh, you know continuum of care that's required from addressing Members. people who are in crisis trying to connect them with care working to close those gaps and we know there's more work to be done we know we all need to work together in our communities to pull together to get British Columbians through that crisis. And I am grateful to be able to count on the support of this House to do that work, as well as our partners in the health authorities and frontline providers. Member for Prince George Wilmot, supplemental. Well, one thing the Minister can count on is the fact that this side of the House is going to continue to ask the hard questions about the fact that families across British Columbia do not have the access that is required in the letter of requirements before decriminalization moves ahead. And that answer shows British Columbians how utterly disconnected this minister is with the situation that families across this, this province are facing. I can tell the minister from first-hand experience that in my office, I hear from families that are desperate. They are at their wit's end and there are no treatment options, no services. The letter of requirement actually goes on to say uh, something else the minister might want to give us an answer to, because obviously the last answer was no. The letter of requirements also specifically says that this government must, must, and I quote, meet the unique needs of people living in rural communities, end quote. How can the minister stand here and pretend that families who live in rural British Columbia have access to treatment when they need it? Because she knows they simply do not. Can the minister get up and tell us whether or not she believes they have met the criteria as laid out in the letter of expectations from the federal government? Minister. Thank you, uh, th thank you, Honor Honourable Speaker. And you know, I, I, I think we've, you know, we've talked here today about the importance of building up a continuum of care, and that is work that that is underway. And I think there's no question. We all know that there are gaps in that system. Members, members, let's hear the answer, please. Please, Shh. members, me members, let the minister answer, please. Minister will continue. We have, uh, have a work 
to do that we have been doing since 2017 to build an integrated system of care out of a fragmented kind of scattershot of, of, of services. And that is a, a situation that, uh, that requires working with all of our partners, which is the work that we have been doing. And so when we, uh, you know, when we talk about introducing complex care in communities uh, like Bella Coola and uh, at Kamloops and Powell River and up the Sunshine Coast, that is part of, the, part of the answer to this. When we talk about expanding sobering beds in Prince George, that is part of the answer to this. When we talk about expanding sobering beds on the North Island, that is part of the answer to this. When we talk about, when members, we talk about members. Uh, the need to invest upstream, that, that's what we need to do. I think when all of the parties stood together uh, on uh, last week and announced this, uh, this, uh, announced this move, we under all parties stood, the police who stood with us, the federal government, public health, all of the stakeholders, including those who had lost, lost loved ones to this crisis, including those who had lost loved ones, stood with us to say that this move was an important move to make now, not tomorrow, not next week, now as part of scaling up treatment, as part of working on safe supply, members, as part members. of investing on housing, as part of our government safers community plan, because honestly, colleagues, we have to do all of the things in this space. We have to do all of this, all of the things in order to make progress for British Columbians and have their backs on this issue. That's the work we're going to do. Member for West Vancouver, Capilano. Uh, thank you, Mr. Speaker. This is a two-term government that has, six, has had six years to put services in place, but has utterly failed to do that work. They have failed, Mr. Speaker, to do even the most basic groundwork to support this decriminalization experiment. No wonder there was no mention of decriminalization in yesterday's throne speech. The letter of requirements from the federal government says, and I quote, data collection will need to start immediately to establish a baseline, end quote. Is the minister satisfied that this very specific requirement from the federal government in order for decriminalization to move forward, is the minister satisfied that this specific requirement has been met and will she explain to us what the baseline metrics actually are? Government House Leader. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much, Honourable Speaker. Um, I appreciate the, the conversation Shh. today. Members. Members. Th thank you, Honourable Speaker. I appreciate the uh, exchange uh, of ideas today and the conversation we're having. I think um, there's two things I, I really appreciate. One, um, a recognition from the leader of, op the, leader of the opposition that, uh, and, and a commitment to support decriminalization. I think that uh, I think he was asked in the, he was asked by the media. Mem members, members, let's. Members, members, will come to order. Members? Question was asked. House leader is going to answer the question.
Please continue. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Um, uh, again, I appreciate the Leader of the Opposition making it clear he supports decriminalization. Uh, he was clear in the media. But I also appreciate the Leader of the Opposition acknowledging that uh, to do this important work, it's going to require investments. Because that wasn't the case when he was the Minister of Health, when he saw deep cuts on those Speaker. It wasn't. Ma'am. Thank you, members. 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 Minister will continue. It's, it's hard to hear the truth on those speaker. Members, whether you like it or not, the House leader is going to finish his answer, so let's listen to that. Okay? That wasn't the case, Honorable Speaker, when he was the Minister of Health, when he cut health care funding. It wasn't the case when he was the Minister of Finance, where he oversaw deep cuts to mental health services, Honorable Speaker. In fact, in fact, Honorable Speaker, in fact, members. In fact, Honorable Speaker, when he was the finance minister and the federal government, the Harper government, made deep cuts to health care transfers, he actually thought it was great. He was the only, only minister from across the country that thought the tax, those tax, those health care cuts were fantastic. In fact, in fact, Honorable Speaker, Ontario's finance minister at the time. Members. Perhaps, perhaps the new members might not know this information and they might want to hear this. The Honourable, the uh, Minister of Finance called it a frontal attack on public health care. He said it's going to lead to a reduction in quality of health care across the country. Quebec's finance minister said totally unacceptable. PI, PI said, I can't Members. believe what we're seeing. You know, Honourable Speaker, you know what the, what the Minister of Finance, now the Leader of the Opposition said? Wrap it up, please. He said, from BC's perspective, we think this is a good thing. I appreciate the certainty. So as much as I appreciate the Minister, the Leader of the Opposition now finding this uh, conversation to be important, now he thinks investments are important. Where were the investments when he was on this side of the house, Honourable Speaker? The balance of question period.